0: Disneyland certainly transformed our concept of outdoor entertainment, but much of what made it work so well actually came from a long lineage of ideas. From the old international expos and world's fairs to the big three at Coney Island, we can trace the development of intentional thematic design that set these playgrounds apart from the typical carnival-style amusement parks of the day. Welcome to America's Disneyland's, showcasing the history of regional theme parks. I'm Barry Hill, and this is Episode 1, Before Disneyland. Six flags Texas Just see them broadly the resistance You can see the six flags waving every track a park bench, a merry-go-round, a bag of peanuts. From such simple, unlikely circumstances comes inspiration that can change the world. Disneyland certainly did that, altering the landscape of entertainment for generations to come. Walt himself shared the story of sitting on that bench in Griffith Park, watching his daughters ride the merry-go-round while he did what he was exceedingly good at, watching people, seeing how they do things what they seemed to want. Walt was an astute observer and infinitely curious. Whereas most of us assume life is what it is, he was always wondering what it might be. The issue with amusement parks of the time, fun as they might be, was that they generally featured a haphazard collection of rides, food, games, and seedy characters. Most were dirty, not well-maintained, and the employees were unfriendly. Many were not really fit for taking your family. Even the better ones, such as Griffith and Beverly, didn't really offer that much for families to do together. And so he couldn't help but think, there must be something more, something different that could be done. Beautiful gardens, twinkling lights, inspirational architecture, immaculately maintained. Walt paused frequently, to the bewilderment of his friend, Ark Linkletter, and others traveling with him, jotting notes in his little book. This visit to Tivoli Gardens in 1951 was surely one of the key moments when things began to click in Walt's mind. What made Tivoli different was the intentional design behind the landscaping and layout, bringing a beautiful, reassuring order and peace notoriously absent in typical parks of the day. It demonstrated that you could craft an ordered, controlled environment that not only was nice to look at and walk through, but that affected one's psyche in a profound way. You let your guard down in such a place. You talk to strangers. It's inspirational and uplifting. Beautiful gardens. Twinkling lights. Inspirational architecture. Immaculately maintained. No, not Tivoli. Living on a farm in Missouri opened up all kinds of adventures for a little ten-year-old tyke. He had room to roam and explore, to build forts, to just be a boy. And in the evenings, he and his sister Ruth would walk the 15 blocks to Electric Park, the second so-named park in Kansas City, inspired from both Coney Island and the White City architecture of Chicago's 1893 World's Columbian Exposition. Originating as a trolley park and built during the heyday of grand amusement extravaganzas, Electric Park was a beautifully designed, carefully laid out, peaceful retreat for recreation. Sure, there was a roller coaster and a few other thrill rides, but it presented a sense of order and sophistication with its carefully manicured green areas, intricate architectural detail, and inspiring structures lined with thousands of popcorn lights. At night, the place simply radiated, sending thousands of guests home with a magnificent fireworks display. And so the seeds were planted for something different, something that would go far beyond the barkers, ugly rides, and freak shows both seem fitting as a genesis for the vision of Disneyland. And yet, as with anything in life, it's not so simple. As satisfying as it is to confidently proclaim this to be the moment, the thing that started it all, there's much more to the story. The genesis of the theme park concept can mark a significant transformation and turning point at the opening of Disneyland, but pieces of it actually go back centuries. The creation of public spaces for various purposes, including fun and entertainment, education and exposition, food and games, and just plain getting together with friends are a common thread. Although the 17th and 18th century pleasure gardens of Europe, such as London's Vauxhall Gardens, had early traces of park-like features, we'll trace our thematic amusement park routes to the large expositions and world fairs of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. At various times a celebration of the past, others looking toward the future, these events featured increasingly symbolic architecture and thematic experiences in the pavilions and attractions. They featured built-for-purpose space, meaning the layout, structures, and activities were intended to support the specific motives of the fair. The grounds were enclosed from the surrounding environment, requiring ticketed entry at the front gate. Each event followed an overall theme, such as energy or the future. Originally intended to be primarily educational, expositions helped usher in an age of intellectualism beyond the elite social class. Middle-class citizens thronged to these expos and enjoyed fine art, music, history, and science exhibitions, often for the first time. Our nation's art, history, and science museums can be traced largely to these events, providing lasting opportunities to enjoy and learn long after the fairs closed. But, people being people, the balance between educating and entertaining was unsurprisingly lopsided as we moved from informational world fairs to amusement parks. People generally want to have fun, after all, and the operators of these fairs and expos learned early on to include food, games, entertainment, and even rides in order to financially support these extravagantly expensive endeavors. It was for this purpose we got the word Midway from the 1893 Chicago World's Columbian Exposition, when planners insisted on establishing an amusement area separate from the more serious educational offerings. And so the concept of attractions took form. Innovative rides such as roller coasters, steeplechase, and ferris wheels were developed, providing repeatable thrills, something the lofty educational exhibits somehow didn't quite command. The idea of a ride was nothing new. Existing amusement parks featured all sorts of rides and thrills. But scale and imagination took on new directions and heights, literally. The Philadelphia Centennial of 1876 showcased a 300-foot-tall iron tower, the Sawyer Observatory one could grab a bird's-eye view of the 1934 Chicago World's Fair from an aerial tram ride, or an even loftier perspective on the 1915 San Francisco Pan-Pacific International Exposition Aeroscope. It leveraged over 100 people up to 330 feet at the end of a 285-foot-long pivoting steel arm. For the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, George Washington Gale Ferris, a young engineer from Pittsburgh, envisioned a 250 foot diameter revolving steel wheel with seats that rotated up and around. And forget such sedate, charming affairs. The parachute jump for the 1939 New York World's Fair hauled what looks like a flat board with canvas straps across the back some 20 stories up before letting go and bouncing to an uneasy landing near the ground. In an age before film and television, People's exposure to past civilizations and faraway lands was restricted to photos and a book. The notion of relaxing on a gondola as it floated past recreations of Venice, or riding a miniature railway through Switzerland, or even being submerged in a submarine was novel, exciting, and growing increasingly sophisticated. One could relive the 1913 Dayton Flood, complete with gushing waters and burning buildings, or marvel at a five-acre reproduction of the Panama Canal. A trip to the moon was a staggeringly ambitious dark ride first presented at the 1901 Buffalo Pan American Expo, where guests boarded an airship and sailed upward to the moon. Large, mechanically driven wings flapped away as fans simulated wind and the engines roared and vibrated the ship. Passengers followed their journey's progress as canvas print rolled by the portals with images of an increasingly distant planet Earth. Lighting and sound completed the experience, all housed in a gargantuan, 80-foot-high, 40,000-square-foot show building. It wasn't only the rides and simulations themselves, but the facades of the buildings often reflected the theme of what was to be discovered inside. Some of these were quite elegant others garishly overstated. The Zone, a seven-block-long midway at the 1915 Pan-Pacific International Exhibition, was a notable example of wildly symbolic architecture. The four-story tall Uncle Sam leaning over the souvenir watch palace, the dominating winged angel inviting you to witness creation from Genesis, the handheld held cone hovering over the ice cream window, and, of course, Toyland Grown Up, featuring 14 acres of oversized toys, figures, and alphabet blocks. The result was a visual cacophony that surely generated sensory overload, but was all new and exciting for a growing, increasingly mobile population looking for places to go and things to do. The problem with all this was that world's fairs and expos were temporary. They only lasted a couple of years or so. And once people got accustomed to all these thrills and experiences, well, they didn't want to stop. It's one thing to part ways with the St. Louis, Louisiana Purchase Exposition, but to not be able to ride the Ferris wheel again? When the World's Columbian Exposition wrapped up in 1893, people rioted when the wheel shut down. The Buffalo Extravaganza, focused on a university style curriculum and object lessons, was a certified flop, except for the amusement midway. When it came down to it, people were far more interested in the rides and attractions than the lofty exposition halls and so amusement parks flourished across the country, benefiting from the advances and experiences realized by the Expos. Many of these were the so-called trolley parks, conveniently and inexpensively connected to nearby towns via the electric streetcar. They were largely simple affairs at first, essentially space for people to enjoy entertainment, leisure, and sports. Names familiar to park enthusiasts today got their start at the turn of the century, such as Kennywood, Lake Compounds, Quasi, Dorney Park, and Canopy Lake Park. Along with swimming pools and dance pavilions, amusement such as carousels, shoot-the-shoots, and roller coasters were added, turning many of these recreational areas into full-fledged amusement parks. Trolley Parks flourished through the 1920s, a time of prosperity and enthusiasm, but then saw a decline toward the end of the decade. The automobile allowed greater opportunity to explore beyond the tracks. Urban parks suffered from limited parking, and the Depression was beginning to dampen everything in American society. A number of the original trolley parks survives today, but most have been gone for decades. None of these would come close to qualifying as a theme park. The extravagant attractions from the World Expos were simply too expensive, too grand, and, well, not really suited to a local recreational area. But there were others, direct descendants of the Grand Fairs, that carried forward concepts that would be key for the future of theme parks. The Big Three made their home at Coney Island, New York. Steeplechase, Luna, and Dreamland. honeymooning George Tillieu wandered the grounds of the 1893 World's Columbian Expo in Chicago with his new bride, seeking ideas for the land he owned on Coney Island in New York. When his eyes fell upon Ferris's will, he knew he had found it. An attraction that could hold up to 2,160 people at 50 cents each was a business bonanza. And so after discovering it, it had already been sold for relocation after the fair, he decided to have his own built. The new will, Half the size of Ferris's joined other attractions scattered about his property, including double-dip chutes, an aerial slide, and an imported bicycle railroad. What he didn't understand at first, though, was the concept of grouping everything together and charging general admission. This was pioneered by Captain Paul Boynton with Sea Lion Park, the first gated amusement park in the country, also located at Coney Island. Searching for a headlining attraction for a newly reimagined park, Tillew discovered a mechanical horse-themed racing ride by English inventor J.W. Cawdry. He bought the rights, improved the concept, and opened Steeplechase Park in 1897. Steeplechase featured a combination of traditional amusements along with attractions originating from the world's fairs. Some of these were relocated to the park pretty much as is similar to how Walt Disney brought attractions developed for the 1964 World's Fair back to Disneyland. A trip to the moon was one of these, from the 1901 Buffalo Expo. Many were new inventions, such as an early roller coaster from LaMarcus Thompson, the steeplechase race, and a series of wild rides that certainly pushed the envelope of current social etiquette. Still, most of these were amusement attractions, and aside from the moon experience, not anything necessarily thematic or immersive. And the park was certainly not intended to convey any particular theme or placemaking. Till you was merely looking for the biggest return on his investment, no matter what the attraction happened to be. Luna Park and Dreamland opened in 1903 and 1904, respectively. Both were responses to the wildly successful steeplechase, and each tried to outdo the other. After making a fortune with his moon excursion after only one season at steeplechase, 28-year-old Fred Thompson, the consummate showman, teamed up with Elmer Skip Dundee to build their own money-making enterprise. They leased the failed Sea Lion Park property, transforming its 22 acres into Luna Park. Widely considered the first sort of a theme park, Luna brought key components from the expos, primarily the concept of an enclosed, built-for-purpose space separate from the rest of the surrounding environment. The park had its own version of Sleeping Beauty Castle for an icon, a 200-foot tall tower covered in bright, multicolored lights that were quite the sight as night fell on Coney. Symbolic, thematic architecture that was fun and entertaining was in. Traditional straight lines and pure form was out. Overall, however, what made it different from Steeplechase's emphasis on rides and amusements was its sense of another place, of fantasy and illusion, Architecture and attractions were elevated to new heights and offered visitors simulated, immersive experiences of historic events, world cultures, and future dreams. Dreamland was intended to be a bigger and better version of Luna, and it was, but with a different approach. Architecture was more refined. Buildings were painted white for a majestic, traditional feel, similar to the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. It also boasted its own magnificent tower, and the park absolutely radiated from the glow of a million lights. William Reynolds, the park's founder, copied liberally from attractions found at other parks, but of course making them bigger and more sensational. Themes were more educational and with a moralistic twist. Major attractions sought to teach biblical principles, even demonstrating what was in store for unbelievers at End of the World and Hellgate and none of this really worked. The park never reached the popularity of Steeplechase and Luna, and in a spectacular twist of judgmental irony, burned to the ground from an accident that set hell on fire. From a sheer scale and financial investment standpoint, these parks were easily the equal of a Disney park. Luna brought in over four million guests per year at one point. Dreamland cost three and a half million dollars to build, more than half a century before Disneyland. Though certainly very different constructs with little cohesive sense of storytelling, placemaking, and with primitive thematic immersion, they were the pinnacle of spectacular entertainment and social gathering in their day. Key ideas were in place that would later find fruition in the modern theme park. All of these early parks were proof of concept that people wanted to gather and engage in social discourse, experience immersive environments and simulation, have fun, and perhaps learn something along the way. And they didn't mind paying for the privilege. The millions of dollars spent pushing the envelope of rides, shows, and theme-based attractions was a precursor to the current-day theme park arms race between Disney and Universal. It just took several intervening decades before an ambitious cartoonist jump-started and transformed the entire industry. was no secret around the studio that Walt was thinking of building a park. He'd been talking about it for years, first looking at storage space on his back lot, then across the road from the studio. Of course, in those days, everybody's idea of a park was something on the order of a carnival or seaside amusement area. California had become quite the entertainment architectural scene. The state was full of parks, drive-in movies, and roadside restaurants and concessions themed like you'd find in Roller Coaster tycoon. It was a mecca of recreation, catering to a wave of post-World War II blue-and-white-collar families who were first-time home buyers, relatively prosperous, and eager to jump in the family car and explore. This mobility and range of options presented challenges to parks, who suffered with increased competition for the family dollar and attention. Along with a desire for some sort of family-friendly attraction, one of Walt's early reasons for a park was in response to all the letters he'd get asking for a behind-the-scenes tour of the studio. Universal Studios Hollywood had been doing this quite successfully for years, but it's one thing to let people gape at their favorite movie stars on a live-action set. Walking around seeing animation come together was on the order of watching the grass grow through the window. So, maybe a small park with things for families to do with their kids. They could meet Mickey Mouse, and of course, take a miniature train ride. It certainly had to be more interesting than the local amusement areas he'd been taking his daughters to. It was Walt's love of trains that led him to grab Ward Kimball, one of the studio artists who actually ran a full-size railroad in his not-so-full-size backyard to attend the 1948 Chicago Railroad Fair. Along with scores of trains on display, each company set up a scenic representation of their home territory, the French Quarter of New Orleans, the Wild West with trading posts and teepees, a generic national park complete with a mechanical geyser that shot up every 15 minutes. Authentically costumed employees completed the illusion of being in a different place at a different time. The most poignant moment for Walt was a depiction of Lincoln's funeral train, including an original rail car and the singing of The Battle Hymn of the Republic. But it wasn't just the individual scenes that captivated Walt. There was an overall cohesiveness and unity with all these aspects, pointing toward a common goal, a common good. Disneyland would later take this idea and elevate it to a whole new level. Afterward, Walton Ward stopped off at Henry Ford's Greenfield Village, featuring recreations and relocated structures of historic places in America. One could meander through Thomas Edison's laboratory, explore the Wright brothers' home and bicycle shop, and practice spelling at Noah Webster's house. There were traces of Ford's own childhood and past as well, such as the farmhouse in which he grew up, staged with various items that reinforced fond memories. Patriotism and personal nostalgia would surface time and again as one of Walt's inner themes, and such experiences surely left indelible impressions on him as he sifted through various ideas for his park. Up until this point, Walt had been pursuing the small Mickey Mouse park along with an idea for his deep interest in miniatures, a traveling rail car exhibit filled with tiny, authentically detailed scenes of Americana. Animator Ken Anderson had been hired from the studio to help him develop what became known as Disneylandia, or Walt Disney's America. One set included Walt's own handmade replica of Granny Kincaid's Cabin from the movie So Dear to My Heart. But other than a recorded narration and lights that turned on, it just sat there. A trip to New Orleans netted him a mechanical bird that flapped its wings while it sang. So he had Wethel Rogers, the studio's quiet genius, tear it apart to see how it worked. From this came Project Little Man, a dancing miniature set on an opera stage. The goal was to make it as real as possible, so actor Buddy Ebsen was filmed against a grid so its dance movements could be translated to the mechanical figure. Over time, though, as various scenes developed, the logistics of how to display it all began to reveal a dead end. The railroad industry was changing significantly, reducing opportunities for excursion trains to easily move about from city to city. The costs for right-of-way also began to skyrocket as industry officials learned about the plan and tried to cash in. And capacity would be severely limited as people casually wandered through and watched each tiny scene's action. Meanwhile, Walt had been researching amusement parks, fairs, carnivals, zoos, and anything else that seemed remotely related. Along with the big ideas that were forming from his experiences with miniatures, Tivoli, the railroad fair, and so on, he spent a great deal of time sitting on park benches, observing how things worked, how people moved around, what they seemed to enjoy, and what frustrated them, the role of landscape and architecture. After a few frustrating attempts with traditional architects, it became clear a different approach was required. Walt began pilfering a small team of artists from the studio to work at WED, his personal design company, and they alternately sweated and froze in a rundown shack that was a holdover from the original studio on Hyperion Avenue. They visited parks on the weekends, including Knott's Berry Farm, whose owners were initially quite eager to answer an avalanche of questions about the park's design and operation. Bud Hurlbut, owner of a small park in Los Angeles, would notice Walt spending hours looking at his rides he eventually became a good resource for Walt and ultimately industry fame as the designer of the Calico Mountain Mine Ride and the Timber Mountain Log Ride at Knott's. On a visit to London in 1951, Walt, by chance, met an artist and fellow rail buff by the name of Harper Goff. They hit it off, and Harper eventually came to work for Walt. His first mission? Start work on the Disneylandia project, but then almost immediately he got assigned to the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea movie while Walt was in England. The third assignment, though, was to lay out a site map for a 16-acre park across the street from the studio. In a detailed 1948 memo, Walt had described what Mickey Mouse Park would entail, and it was vastly different from typical parks of the day. Guests would spend a relaxing day in a miniature town, complete with fire and police stations, a town hall, drugstore, opera house, various shops, and of course, a train station. A horse-drawn streetcar would transport you to Western Village, an Old West-inspired section. But after his recent experiences and further thinking, he was already plussing the ideas. Harper's instructions were to add some Tivoli, Greenfield Village, and Colonial Williamsburg to the original concepts of family amusements. I don't want to just entertain kids with pony rides and swings. I want them to learn something about their heritage. Goff's concept art from this project is an early glimpse of Disneyland architecture and placemaking, with scenes straight out of Yesterland. The initial plan included an Old West area, riverboat, stagecoach ride, small boat ride, a farm, a tiny lake in the middle, and of course a miniature train circling the park. Considering the obvious pressure for maximizing limited acreage, the layout is quite spacious, scenic, and fairly immersive. The influence of Tivoli and Greenfield is obvious, but even these don't quite feature the same level of placemaking, meaning immersing guests into a different time or place. Walking through Goff's layout would take you back to another period in American history, albeit on a small scale. Early signs from Burbank officials have been positive, and the final presentation to the City Council was delivered in typical Walt style, dynamic, animated storytelling describing the beautiful scenes and activities for families to enjoy, the educational opportunities, pointing to the detailed artwork arranged around the room. This was the first time all of these various concepts began to tangibly meld together into what would evolve into Disneyland. The beauty and intentionality of Tivoli, the American heritage and thematic symbolism of the fairs, the recreations and history in Greenfield Village, the Disneylandia miniatures, mechanical recreations of historic figures, childhood memories, and of course model trains all grown up. But the presentation did not go well. Burbank killed the proposal for that little park across from the studio, liking the vision to understand the difference between Disney's dreams and Carney fairs. And will forever be in their debt, because we got something far grander instead. America's Disneyland's is produced by Rivershore Creative. Find out more about regional park history at americasdisneylands.com and find great books at rivershorepress.com. For the complete history of America's regional theme parks, grab a copy of Imagineering an American Dreamscape, available everywhere. Thanks for listening.